From GreenBiz Group, welcome to this week's edition of 350. I'm Joel McCower here at GreenBiz headquarters at 350 Frank Ogawa Plaza in downtown Oakland, California. On this week's edition, inside Exxon's carbon removal strategy, how Trump's tariffs heighten supply chain risk, the first open source technology to address soil health, and can companies truly become climate activists? We're taking to the streets this week on 350. It's August 30th, 2019. Wow, August is over. Welcome to this week's edition of Green Biz 350. Joining me as she does each week from Midland Park, New Jersey, is Green Biz Editorial Director, Heather Clancy. Hello there, Heather. Hello, Joel. August is almost over, and we're on episode 186. Wow, but who's counting? (laughs) And you are about to take a little time off. I'm about to take What's going on? Where are you going? Off to... I am headed south, southwest to Mexico, for, where I will be diving in the Sea of Cortez and completely off the grid, which is quite a luxury, actually. I look at it as a luxury. <laughs> they don't have Wi-Fi down on those reefs? They don't have Wi-Fi in the reefs. No uh, transmitters there, thank goodness. And um, so, yeah, I will be spending a little time off, off the grid and under the water. That'll be really fun. Uh... I'm, I know you'll enjoy that. I will. And what about you? What's up with you? Oh, you've, well, been, uh, you've been doing a lot of thinking and musing <laughs> and question asking this week, Joel. Well, well, that's what I do, at least part of it. Yeah, I, I did this piece uh, in my Monday newsletter, Green Buzz, on, um, you know, the, the world is going sideways. What's a sustainability professional to do? It's something I've been thinking about a bunch and having lots of conversations about this with colleagues, peers, um, some people I don't know very well, and some people I've known for a long, long time, just basically saying, you know, first of all, confiding that, you know, I'm, for the first time in my career, I've been having trouble staying optimistic when you look at what's happening in the Amazon and the Arctic and Greenland, when you look at what's happening in air pollution in China and the floods and everything else that are are coming down the pike and just the, 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 the scorching heat wave that's going on in Europe, another one. You know, it's kind of hard to stay optimistic about this stuff. So I'm just sort of asking people what they do. And I've gotten a great deluge, a welcome deluge of responses, not just uh, in clicking on the link that's in the article that ran on Tuesday on the website um, or showed up in the newsletter on Monday, but also on I posted uh, the question on LinkedIn and been getting a, a lot there. You can read those that are posted there. So it's, um, you know, probably... 40 or 50 responses at this point. And at some point, I'm going to take those and uh, figure out how to knit them together or, or play them back to the audience of here's what your peers are doing. Anyway, it's really been fascinating. Yeah, and I, I, I'm actually looking at one of the comments here. One of, these, one of these very optimistic people online is talking about, um, you know, focusing on the progress, which, you know what, yes. Um, please talk about what's working. I think that's one way we can kind of keep positive. Uh, take time off. Hey, I'm doing that. I'm, I'm, <laughs> I'm following the advice and I didn't even know it. But I just, um, I appreciate this. And I'm actually reading these comments too, because I want to know, I think anyone in this movement 
could benefit from sharing. And I think that's actually, actually, but that's one, one thing this movement does really well is they share. There's not this sort of, you know, this is my secret. This is my practice. I can't share it with you. You can't use it. You know, there's yeah. a lot of wonderful community and collaboration. I know we use that word a lot, but it's really true. And in this case, this is something that, yes, people want to share, but also people have been hesitant to speak up on. And uh, I, as you can see, there's a certain power in just asking the question and inviting people who, and I found that personally face-to-face -face as I talk with people and they say, you know, I haven't been able to talk with this. I haven't said this to anybody, but here's what's going on for me. And, and it is some combination of, of horror and optimism. And sometimes, uh, you know, it is possible to hold those both at the same time. Uh, horror at what's going on and the optimism for all the great solutions. But it's, you know, there are days when, frankly, horror wins out. So, well, enough about horror. And let's go back to <laughs> optimism. And yes. we'll, do that, we'll do that in the Week in Review. So let's start this week in the area of what we call Greenfin, green finance, and specifically the part about environmental, social, and governance, or ESG performance, and how that's increasingly gone from the margins to the mainstream and the big investors, big institutional investors, the Black Rocks and the State Streets and the CalPERS and others are now really leaning into that as a, as a proxy for risk. Well, it turns out, according to Mike Howers, a former GreenBiz contributor, he's now managing director of sustainability and, and social impact at Think Parallax, that this also applies not just to publicly traded companies, but private companies that are on their way to an IPO. Yeah, what I liked about this piece is we do we do public, uh, focus a lot on the public companies, and for right, you know, for the obvious reasons, is that's the ones where. The, the institutional investors are really demanding the disclosure and wanting to hear more. And, and certainly that movement is, is making good progress, I'm happy to say. Go back to our theme of optimism. But um, this, this one was, a, uh, I liked it because it just made me think about all of the companies that are startups. You know, we have tremendous um, access to wonderful entrepreneurs and startups in, in the community here at GreenBiz and in all sorts of different fields and this is a great reminder that purpose if you will i you know purpose is, is the word that a lot of companies um, use in the marketing sense to talk about this sort of thing that that it's it's a great to have a foundation for that not not only because you might go public in the future but also dun 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 the talent thing right so you want to hire the the, the people that will help you get to the future and the, the, the people that you're trying to hire are, are more likely to be looking at this. So that's, you know, it was just a, it's just one of these great, you know, pretty, it's, it's not anything I, I would think that, that any reader or anyone listening to this would think is a, like a, a revelation or a major, like, change. I think it's just a, a recognition that the private sector really start, needs to start focusing on this as well. And, and um, I don't know about you, Joel, but I hear from plenty of privately held companies. We, if you think about it, many of the big companies that we have, the food company, um, you know, Mars, you know, they're, they're not public. Um, you know, so it's, if I step back and, and think about where some of the tremendous progress has been made, there is some really great notable uh, private companies that are in there. So I, it makes sense to me. And I, I, I think it's a great reminder, especially if, 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 um, 
you're an entrepreneur that's starting to scale your company and, you, and you're getting to the point where you have to write a mission statement. You, you have, maybe you haven't had one yet. <laughs> it's just um, one of those, you know, make sure that this is part of your, of your culture and your foundation from the beginning. Yeah, but I think what the message here that I saw was that if you're building a company with some intention of going public, uh, you know, down the line, that baking in ESG thinking and sustainability initiatives uh, from the get-go is really important. What we see a lot of, and it's sort of one of the dirty secrets of, of clean tech here in the Silicon Valley, is that these companies that are changing the world with all of these great technologies and energy solutions and everything else, but they themselves aren't looking at, but not just how they run the company, but what the products are made from and a number of basic things that any typical company of any size these days would need to look at to think about their, their not just their environmental responsibility, but also their risk profile, how much this, this affects uh, their ability to uh, you know, in, under changing circumstances in a climate-changing world and a resource-constrained world to uh, have business continuity and, and not get pushback from, from others, and yes, to uh, attract and retain mm -hmm. talent, which is a competitive mm -hmm. kind of thing. So this is a, a really interesting topic, and I think that the emerging early-stage companies that, you know, claim to be sustainable or clean or something... Uh, and don't always think about these things need to be doing that. So speaking of risks when you're investing, uh, this we have a great piece this week on supply chain risks, as you teased in the intro for the, the podcast this week. I, this is something that I've been wondering about and, and worrying about a little bit over the past mm, six to eight months. As the tariff situation and the sort of trade hostilities between the United States and China have intensified how that might affect the supply chain sustainability initiatives of some of the bigger companies out there. And my specific worry, Joel, is that if a company has to yank their supply chain out of China and put it in a place like Vietnam or Cambodia or you know some other organ some other country in that region that might not have the same sustainability mindset, you know, what does that mean for all the work you've done? If, if you've spent years and, and, you know, as we know, I mean, it takes a long time to build a supply chain. I, there's a great example in this particular article mentioning, you know, it took Sea Eagle boats 20 years to establish its supply chain in China. They're from Port Jefferson, New York. That's a long time. And now, and, and, and over the past, I don't know, decade, We've a lot of really forward-thinking companies have spent time worrying about energy efficiency within their supply chain. Of course, all of the human rights issues, toxic chemicals, water, and so forth. And if if suddenly things get so bad that that we have to move out of China, if you will, or or it's it's more beneficial to move out of China for monetary reasons, then that could really kind of disrupt the efforts of the sustainability strategies for a lot of companies um, you know if, if, it, if things aren't done carefully yeah we talk a lot about supply chain disclosure and transparency and traceability and those are all functions of uh, long-standing relationships where trusted relationships where you can work with suppliers in let's say China to um, provide details that might have been opaque in the past and uh, your ability to 
to tr track and trace things and the, the chain of custody from the let's say the forest floor or the sea or or wherever the re the resources come from all the way to uh, manufacturing and finished products is becoming uh, an important part of of well ESG you know regulatory social environmental and reputational risks um, and so when you have to pull those out uh, those relationships out of China and start anew. Uh, that's uh, there's a sustainability challenge there that we haven't really talked much about. Certainly not, not part of the national conversation. But uh, these are important issues. And SASB and the author of this piece is Taylor Reed, who's an analyst at the sector lead for consumer goods at SASB, the Sustainability Accounting Standards Boards, has identified supply chain management as an issue that's likely to have material financial implications in four of the seven industries in the consumer goods sector that they studied. So uh, they've put out a, a guide recently, engagement guide for asset owners and asset managers, which provides some questions and, and, and to help you know, create the kinds of conversations with suppliers that companies need to be having. So this is an interesting area, and again, one that most people don't think about. I'd love to end on a positive note here. This could be a great opportunity to establish completely new supply chain relationships that are sustainable from the beginning. Right. If you think about it, like if you have to start from square one, why not start in the right place? Yeah. Well, speaking of uh, su supply chains and hookups and starting in from some new places, uh, there's this great article by Ben Soltoff from Yale University, environmental innovation fellow there, about this hookup between ExxonMobil and Global Thermostat, which is a... Uh, really interesting company looking at direct air capture and why ExxonMobil, which is as many uh, number of, of oil companies are, Occidental Petroleum is another, Chevron, uh, another that are investing in companies like Global Thermostat or their competitor, Carbon Engineering, to do something called direct air capture, which is basically in, in layman's terms, sucking carbon dioxide and other greenhouse gases out of the sky. And last week we talked about Stripe, this uh, tech company that announced that it was going to go beyond its uh, offsets to, uh, to actually create negative emissions. And, and this is very much part of that. This is a, just a really interesting space that's really early stage, but starting to get some traction. Yeah, the, the piece here, what's one of the things that's really intriguing about this relationship, it, they're not saying how much money, but they are using the word millions. And uh, the, one of the particular things that I noted was that there's 10, 10 ExxonMobil employees now sort of embedded within the global thermostat uh, operations. So that tells me that, you know, they're, they're seeking to learn from each other and that, that this is something that, that uh, ExxonMobil wants to try to understand and scale in, in other places. Um, you know, they haven't... Uh, they haven't really, again, said much about uh, how, but they have pilot plants in Menlo Park, California and Huntsville, Alabama, but they're small. And what they're trying to do is um, basically build more facilities. Like they're trying to get more commercial plants out there. And the, the specific goal is plants that pull at least 10 times more carbon dioxide out of the air than the pilots. So... Um, now, it's, that's, again, one of these sort of, okay, it's not here yet, but it's, it's in pilot and, and so forth. And one of the things that, that people should know about this company um, is it's, it's about 10 years old. So it's been around a while. So that, that 
tells me that maybe they, they hit it sort of the, the speed bumps, if you will, that maybe some of the other newer ones haven't, haven't had to deal with yet. And so um, they've been kind of mum and, and low key and then boom, out of nowhere, this, this relationship comes, comes out. So yeah, and there's a bigger issue here, Heather, that's I think worth exploring too a little bit um, about, you know, what's the role of a big oil mm-hmm. in, in, in funding future climate tech? Uh, there's, in fact, a piece on that topic on Medium last week by uh, our friend uh, Noah Deitch, who's the executive uh, director of Carbon 180, the sort of think tank uh, in, here, here in Oakland. And um, looking at you know, what how do we think about that? You know, are they, you know, first of all, from a motives perspective, but also, you know, because a lot of this is using, pulling greenhouse gases out of the sky and using them for enhanced oil recovery to, mm-hmm. to get more oil out of the ground. You know, how do we, how do we think about that? And, um, you know, there's a lot of, I think, in the environmental community, there's a lot of support for this kind of thing, but also a, a lot of concern about what are we doing and how much are we, you know, pouring into this in a way that may or may not actually solve the climate crisis. Uh, and I think w- we have a lot of work to do on this. And so this is, you know, I, I'm, I, I'm all for this and I, in, in that we do need an all of the above strategy. And there are very few climate strategies that are effective that don't somehow include carbon removal like these kinds of technologies. But we need to be careful at the same time we support companies like Global Thermostat and their new benefactor, ExxonMobil. As Green Biz contributor Meg Wilcox reported earlier this week, big food companies like General Mills, Campbell, Kellogg, and many others are stepping up collaborations with farmers and suppliers with the goal of encouraging sustainable land stewardship and regenerative agriculture. Collecting data in the field has become far more important because of that, and a lot of the new farm equipment hitting the market today collects it automatically. I'm not just talking about sensors for monitoring field conditions like irrigation levels or or crop maturity. We're talking combines and planters. They're a whole lot smarter. As more tools for measuring those metrics come onto the market, some developed by independent software companies, some by the big food companies themselves, farmers are faced with figuring out how to share what they can without having to use multiple tools. Enter OpenTeam, an open source technology platform that will connect individual tools for tracking soil health and climate mitigation. The name stands for Open Technology Ecosystem for Agricultural Management. The idea is that a farmer can enter his or her data in one farm management system and then share that information with the broader community in the interest of better, richer agronomic information. By the way, it doesn't matter how big the farm is. Open Team is approaching both smallholder farmers and some of the larger acreage operations working on big agri-crops like corn and their approaching farmers all over the world, starting in the United States. Stonyfield Organic is a founder of the initiative, and more than a dozen agricultural research organizations and institutions have since joined the collaboration. It's being spearheaded by Wolf's Next Center for Agriculture and the Environment in Freeport, Maine, along with the U.S. Department of Agriculture and the Foundation for Food and Agriculture Research. I spoke with Doran Cox, research director for the Wolf's Next Center, at length about the effort. One of the things I wondered was why farmers would be willing to share information about their land. 
Here's what Dorn had to say. That exchange is, is critical because in order to provide incentive to share, you have to have value back. The first rung of value is really in terms of agronomic value, is improved soil health, improved crop uh, decision-making, improved uh, management for grazing systems. So these are what we call decision support tools. So taking data that's specific to a farm, uh, their, their location, their, uh, uh, and from that we can get climate and soils and so forth. But then uh, the unique aspects of that farm, uh, such as management uh, records, uh, that they're uh, that are necessary to actually make a better recommendation for uh, input uh, input recommendations and what species to plant and at seeding rates and so forth, or uh, related decision support such as grazing management recommendations. So th- those are th- that's the first level incentives for sharing, but the existence of that data also has value to researchers. And so the alternative to collect for farmer collected data is to send out fairly expensively, uh, it's fairly not necessarily very cost effective to send out grad students to uh, survey and ask uh, farmers a lot of questions or surveys, research surveys that uh, farmers fill out. And it's the same kind of thing that we fill out for the ag census or for FSA. And so the, the, the goal here is to it is to be able to provide this in such a format that it's also easy to share to make it easier to participate in on-farm research trials that farmers might otherwise not be interested in participating in, provide some compensation for that as well, pro- providing high-quality data, to make it easier to access uh, incentive programs from corporate buyers uh, and also for government programs that are based on outcomes or eligibility. So we can more easily link in with uh, the next generation of USDA programming, things like EQIP, for example. And then, then the final, I'll just add a, a, a final uh, incentive, and some of, you'll see that with some of our tech partners, is direct payments for environmental outcomes. So these are things like the carbon marketplaces that are developing by organizations like Nori or the Regen Network, which is uh, is providing a, a framework for marketing environmental data that's generated at the farm level and supporting things like uh, the Savory Ecosystem outs- Outcome Verification Programs or the Environmental Service Marketplace Programs as well, so uh, the ESM Consortium. So those are, I think, so the stacked values, but it's all based on improved outcomes at the farm level first. None of that works unless it's working for the farmer. And then everything else is really uh, is a benefit on top of that. So we can create additional new income streams, but the farm still has to function <laughs> effectively and, uh, and provide better outcomes. Another thing I asked him to address in more detail was the role of a large food company or agribusiness within the open team project. Here's more from Dorn Cox. One of the the challenges here is trust and interoperability, especially when we're looking at a lot of organizations looking at their own certifications within their own supply chains. And there may be 80% overlap between them, but unless there's some level of conversation or coordination, uh, that certification may not be as trusted or as useful to the farmer or to uh, outside of that uh, supply chain. So I think it's about getting the maximum value for the effort that's being put in to uh, certified products or of known origin. And I think providing incentive for producers to provide that kind of information to get more value out of it. 
In terms of how to participate, it's it's really uh, an MOU process. It's a, a process of agreeing to participate in the process itself, in uh, in sharing some of the standards and and uh, being present and willing to engage at those key moments when decisions are being made. Not just it's it's we're agnostic in terms of the field protocols, but we we're encouraging. Uh, interoperability when it comes to collecting that data and making it uh, accessible and exchangeable. To wrap up our chat, I asked Doran Cox to reflect on the impact that the Open Team project hopes to have on the broader field of regenerative agriculture. Plus, what does he believe is a secret sauce that will inspire involvement? The spirit of collaboration. Here's his parting thought. I sort of hit on it already, but I just will emphasize it again because I think it's so important is that the 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 innovation in open team is partly is technologically enabled, but it's really the culture of collaboration that is making the next generation of science and uh, that's going to be necessary to understand regenerative systems, these biological based systems that are really complex. And we're introducing a lot more variables with uh, mixing species and cover, you know, cover crops with cash crops, grazing and uh, and agroforestry and all these systems that are very complex. And I think in order to understand them, we really have to embrace the idea of agriculture as a public science and as something that's shared upon which we can build really innovative next generation enterprises. That's from the tech side, but also from the production side. And so I, I just want to emphasize that. And uh, the thing that I often sort of the secret sauce that is sometimes missed is that that collaborative process and discovery process is really fun. And so that the <laughs> that sounds really, I don't know quite how to capture it, except that it's a different way of doing business. And I think it's one of the reasons that people come together is that this is a uh, process is, is enjoyable, that people do enjoy sharing because we're able to make faster progress and we can see the fruits of our labor faster by scaling our efforts through collaboration. So it's a little bit of that intangible, but I, I think it's really an important ingredient to, uh, to the success of our work so far. And I think the will be key to the future success is that uh, the climate change, it can't all be doom and gloom. We have to have a better way of collaborating and see a brighter future by working together and bringing more people into the into this effort. One of the visitors to the Green Biz office this week is an old friend of ours, Bill Weil, who most recently was the head of sustainability at Facebook. Before that was the energy czar at Google. And uh, now I've been thinking a lot about climate change. Uh, first of all, Bill, always great to see you. Great to see you too, Joel. So one of the things you've been thinking a lot about is uh, how do we up our game? How do we, businesses in particular, but in alliance with nonprofits and governments and business students and who knows who else, actually dig in deeper and actually, and move things forward more quickly than they seem to be happening. Tell me a little bit about what you're seeing out there. The first thing is just to be clear, we need to up our game. I think that's, you know, when I left Facebook a little over a year and a half ago, I wanted to focus on climate and it is, I think, crystal clear. You look at the IPCC report, um, we need to move a lot faster than we are. 
And so then the question I've been asking and talking to a lot of people about is, how can we do that? What needs to happen? And the, the consistent message that is coming through is, we need innovation, we need finance, we need all the things that, that I and many other people have been doing for a long time now. Um, but most importantly, we need policy that will set the rules of the road so that those solutions that Facebook and Google and Walmart and Apple and Kaiser and many others have been working on in their own operations so that those can be scaled society-wide. And that's, that's policy. Renewable portfolio standards, it's things like SB100 here in California, it's, it's a price on carbon, um, it's all sorts of different policies that will drive the progress we need in different sectors. So if the answer here is policy, we need uh, companies to lean into and, and get more engaged with uh, advocating for climate positive policies. Um, how does that happen? I mean, companies say, well, we've got a trade association, we have our lobbyists, and, and what do they need to be doing differently? Most companies today, most of the time, are on the sidelines when it comes to climate policy. And I'm talking about policy at all levels of government, society. So the federal level in the U.S. today, it's pretty paralyzed when it comes to climate-related policy. Um, the state and local level in many states, there are things happening. I think we had some, there's something like 13 governors in office right now who, who ran on a platform that included 100% clean energy for their states. Half a dozen states have actually have laws in place for that. The others don't yet. And when those governors or their legislatures put bills forward, there will be political discussion, shall we say, about you know, what the exact form of those, that legislation will be and, and can it get passed. And what we've seen historically, it's beginning to change, but what we've seen historically is that most of the companies that are really forward-leaning on climate in their own operations, when it comes to those kinds of policies, they stay on the sidelines. And on the other side, most of the companies that are trying to slow down or prevent climate action are all in. So we've got a real imbalance of power there. Uh, so I think what needs to happen is companies need to step up and begin to build a a real agenda around climate. They need what I would call a science-based policy agenda, and they need to support a science-based policy agenda um, in every jurisdiction where they operate. So that's all good, but how do we get them to do this? I mean, they're probably saying nobody's asking us to do this or pressing us to do this. What's, what's it going to take to get them to really lean in to, to climate policies? I think there are two things happening today. One is a lot of people are waking up to the fact that this is really urgent. And you look at the IPCC report, it says we need to decarbonize 45% by 2030 from a 2010 baseline, which was lower than where we are today. So that's probably 55 or 60% from today. That, that's daunting. Um, and investing in innovation isn't going to get us there by 2030. We need to do much more than just invest in innovation. Um, and I think people are waking up to that. And so I think there's, there's a sense growing in the business community that just continuing to do what we've been doing for the last decade isn't enough. The other thing that has really begun to change in the last year is the level of energy and activism, activism coming from young people. And we see this with the Sunrise Movement. We see this with 350.org. We see it with 
the School Strikes for Climate, Greta Thunberg, the Swedish teenager who has sparked a worldwide uh, movement around climate with young people. Um, young people are, they're afraid, but they also are realizing they, they have power and they have the ability to stand up and influence things. And they're doing that. Um, I think what they're beginning to wake up to is that they can influence not just their parents, not just politicians by marching in the streets, um, by Greta going to Davos or to the, the UN COP or whatever, but by influencing companies, which today are mostly on the sidelines of the political process, but could be much more engaged. And so we're beginning to see more employee activism. I've heard this from, I'm not going to name names, but from sustainability leaders at several companies, that they are hearing more and more from their employees, that they want the company to do more in their operations, but also from a policy point of view. And we saw this with uh, for LGBT, for, for example, in Com uh, employees who did not want their companies to do business in North Carolina because of bathroom bills and successfully got them to, uh, the companies to pull out and which uh, successfully got some, uh, I guess, reversal or at least moderation of that in North Carolina. And, and so I guess there is a model for this. Uh, is that the kind of action that you see is warranted here? I think so. I think that, I mean, I think you're absolutely right about what happened with the LGBT rights. Um, there was Indiana with their Religious Freedom Restoration Act in 20, I think it was 2015. There was the, the 360 plus companies joined the amicus brief in favor of marriage equality in front of the Supreme Court. Um, then there was the bathroom bill in North Carolina, both referent Indiana and the, the bathroom bill both got, let's say, fixed. They didn't get completely repealed, but the worst parts were undone. Um, but the, the, there then were similar bills that were proposed in a number of other states that never got off the ground because from the get-go, companies said, if you pass this, we're gonna have to reconsider our investment in this state. Um, and so I think that a similar model could work here. Um, and I think young people are beginning to realize that they can influence companies to use their power and influence in states, in cities, potentially eventually nationally, though I'd, given the political situation in Washington, I don't expect much to happen there anytime soon. So what can we expect to happen anytime soon? What, what do you see putting all of this into motion? What's it going to take? Um, I think it's going to take a bunch of organizations like 350, like Sunrise, like Ceres, like AWE working together and identifying the policies that they really need companies to step up and support and then encouraging companies um, with a combination probably of carrots and sticks to do that. Um, today, companies, if they stay on the sidelines, as you were saying, nobody's pressuring them, there's no risk. And so if they see some risk when they speak up, their inclination is to stay silent. Um, and there have been a few companies that have been more vocal than most, but, but there are pretty few. Um, so I think that we're going to see that begin to change as these various groups work together and mobilize students, current employees, and so on uh, to encourage companies to actually speak up when we need them to. So silence is no longer an option. Si silence is no longer an option, and I think one of the things that, that uh, people need to realize is silence is not neutrality. Companies have, I think, treated in political situations, they often think, well, we're, we're going to stay out of this, we're neutral. But in a, uh, an issue like climate, 
and given the way the, the sort of political power is arranged, silences complicity with the status quo. And the status quo, you know, the message from the IPCC report is that's four or six or eight degrees of warming. That's just not acceptable. Watch this space. Bill Weil, formerly of Facebook and Google. Always a pleasure to see you, Bill. Great to see you too. Thanks, Joel. And that's our 350 podcast for this week. As always, you can go to greenbiz.com slash 350 and you'll find more about the organizations, stories, and events we mentioned in this week's episode. While you're over there, check out our other podcast called Center Stage, the best of live interviews from GreenBiz events. And while you're checking out stuff, make sure you check out our newsletters. We publish a different one Monday through Friday. That's five weekly newsletters in all. You can go to greenbiz.com slash newsletters and you'll find more about them. Our email is 350 at greenbiz.com. As we said, Heather will be off next week, but our colleague Katie Fehrenbacher will be filling in, uh, sitting in Heather's seat. And I, of course, will be back here next week with another edition of Green Biz 350. Until then, from all of us here at Green Biz Group, I'm Joel McCower. Thanks so much for tuning in.